Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry. Clay Lowry serves as the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. For this episode, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Alina Rybakova, who is the Deputy Chief Economist here at the IIF. And maybe even more importantly, Alina is the main author of a paper that we did back in late February on Russia sanctions. I've asked Alina to join me today to unpack the impact of the current sanctions being imposed on Russia for their aggression in Ukraine. As we discussed in last week's episode, the EU and its partners are continuing to dial up the pressure on Russia with new sanctions packages, the latest of which from the EU would embargo all oil imports from Russia. On Sunday, the U.S. also added a new set of sanctions to this pile of sanctions we've talked about for a few months now. This time, it's targeting Russian media outlets and banking executives. It also banned U.S. firms from providing consulting and accounting services to Russia. The EU embargo on all Russian oil imports is still being discussed, with the EU debating Friday the possibility of giving Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic concessions to allow more time to shift their energy supply. Hungary in particular has stalled the process and is demanding a solution for replacing Russian oil in the Hungarian economy. And Bulgaria was not offered such an exemption, but has indicated that they will not support the embargo until concessions are secured. Frankly, this is how EU politics almost always work. They have to try to figure out how to get consensus. So we want to talk about the sanctions regime and kind of what is the impact. We've talked about this before. The invasion happened about two and a half months ago, and there is no better person to talk about this than Alina. So, Alina, let's do that. Can we get your views on what happened over the last week, last two weeks, and what kind of blow will these recent developments on sanctions be in particular to the Russian economy? Well, I think the key takeaway of the last two weeks is that the energy wars are on. And I think that's the most critical stage we're at. You know, we started the sanctions with more financial sanctions. And now with the discussions on one side from the EU being on the offensive and also starting with coal, albeit it's small. And on the other side, you needs to become defensive as well. Because as you mentioned, Russia has disconnected already Poland and Bulgaria. Bulgaria has harder time finding alternatives to Russia gas. We also hear that Finland might be disconnected on May 13th, just this week. And furthermore, the deadline for payments in rubles is coming up on the 21st, I think, of May. So countries have to decide. And I think here Russia is betting on fragmented Europe. And we're already seeing difficulties. European authorities commented that these decisions on sanctions by unanimity complicated and very challenging. So I think that's my key takeaway. The energy wars are on and we expect more of that. That's a very good point. So how is the overall impact on Russia's economy? We've talked about it before that you and others have said that you expect that this will hit Russia's economy very hard, including potentially a 15% decrease or contraction in the economy this year. Are you still there or how are you looking at it? This is an important question. I'll bet there is a lot of uncertainty around this forecast. We still expect minus 15. Notably, Russian authorities themselves expect minus 8 to minus 10% contraction this year. So what are the risks to this forecast? 
On the upside or better potentially forecast is the fact that the Russian central bank responded very skillfully to the round of unprecedented multilateral complex sanctions on their financial sector. And among them, the most important one is freezing of Russian central bank reserves. Central bank responded by draconian capital controls, more than doubling of the interest rate, and other measures like providing liquidity to banks. So in the short, they have avoided financial collapse. And I think there is a risk to our forecast as a result that the contraction might not be as sharp. But just a second ago, we talked about energy wars. And if there are energy wars, then we're definitely getting to minus 15, especially if European Union succeeds in putting some sort of energy embargo on Russia this year. Okay, this is going to be a little strange. So I want to ask you about Ukraine. So we get stuck a little bit talking about Russia. And in Ukraine, obviously, the first thing we should always think about is the humanitarian issues that are going on. But you're an economist. So I want to talk about what's going to happen to the Ukrainian economy. Just this week, the finance minister said that he expected Ukraine to contract by 45% this year. What does the short-term financing look like? How does the short-term economic impact to Ukraine look like? And then maybe if you have a little bit of time is let's think about kind of recovery. Obviously, recovery is hard to do while the war is going on. Thank you, Clay, for mentioning that actually the short-term impact and financing needs, because we felt that in the run-up to the spring meetings, there's been a lot of focus on reconstruction and the different estimates were put out, you know, including more than 400 billion needed for reconstruction, but much less time was spent talking about the current short-term gaps. We're expecting a gap of up to 10 billion monthly on the fiscal accounts. Minister of Finance himself said that they're seeing shortfall of revenues of more than 50%, and we expect that to continue. At the meantime, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to see expenditure not increasing, although they are already making tough choices. So international community needs to come together and put this money now as the war, it seems to be ongoing. So this is the first issue. We've seen some inflows, more than 10 billion, but as we said, you know, just 10 billion per month is, is a very significant gap. At the same time, the discussion is already starting on potential debt restructuring. Ministry of Finance denies this, rumors, and they're very committed to avoiding debt restructuring. But with the contraction that you mentioned of minus 45, we have minus 35, but significant contraction, debt to GDP could raise to 100% or more. And this is where we saw the restructuring last time. Also, there is ethics of prioritization of expenditure. Should they be repaying their external debt holders or domestic debt holders versus paying for social assistance and healthcare, given the war is ongoing? And so what does this mean for, I guess, the overall economy? I mean, a 45% decline is huge, and the United States is arguing right now in, uh, in legislation on trying to provide financing for Ukraine for a recovery situation. The European Investment Bank is also talking about, the European Union's talking about that. I assume the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development are doing it. But if the economy is contracting that sharply, there needs to be some way of creating stability before you can even think about providing financial assistance, I would assume. Ukraine finds itself in the special wartime economics, which is very different from the normal day-to-day economics that we're more used to. It is in this position because of Russia's aggression and requires very tough choices. So on one hand, for example, for the central bank, inflation targeting has been very successful, but at the moment it's very hard to implement inflation targeting, let alone collect inflation information from the regions. So therefore they have to have de facto exchange rate as their nominal anchor, or sort of as the anchor that helps people understand where the economy is going, where inflation is going. At the same time, they're making tough choices on the fiscal accounts, including potentially debt restructuring. 
So I think it is critical for international community to provide support, but also technical assistance of this very special kind of war economics. So you mentioned Ukraine trying to figure out what to do about its debt. But a key aspect, I think, in financial markets is what is Russia doing with the debt that it owes? Over the last couple of months, we've seen Russia try very hard to figure out how to pay its debts, including going against something that the United States did, which the United States, as we all know, froze Russian central bank assets that are held in the U.S. But then it put on a new provision that said that they could not pay their external claims using those assets. Russia has been able to find a way to pay it. And then let me add one more piece of spice to this equation, which is the United States, through an OFAC licensing regime, has basically said that on May 25th, it will not allow U.S. accreditors to receive payments from Russia, no matter where that money comes from, if it's in dollars. How is Russia going to handle this? And a little bit of what some of the motivations are involved. So I think Russia is very realistic in their inability to extract anything in terms of financial markets or sanctions on the West. They know that this is the area where they have no leverage. The area where they have leverage is energy. And that's why we talked earlier about energy wars. So you remember early on in this crisis, Russia said, we're going to pay you in rubles. And recently they blinked and they paid in dollars because exactly they don't have the leverage. So I think Russia is keen to, for symbolic reasons, to avoid default. Also for practical reasons, they are saying that, look, we have about 17% of GDP total debt. External outstanding debt is less than 40 billion and less than half of it, I think, is owned by foreigners. So why would we default in this environment? I think they're also trying to turn the tables on the treasury saying that, look, you know, we're doing everything, quote unquote, right in terms of repayment. And if there is a default, it will be your fault and it will be something that will be potentially legally disputed. Clay, can I also turn the table on you and ask you the same question from your experience of long work at the Treasury? What would you think that will happen on the 25th of May? So this is a difficult one because on one hand, there is the idea of if you're trying to punish Russia, you're trying to take down their reserves. And so obviously, if they continue to pay out of non-frozen reserves, that would theoretically take down all the cash that they have on hand to pay off creditors. Secondly, of course, the creditors didn't do anything really wrong. They just happened to be lending to Russia in the past. So that could therefore suggest that they will extend the license on May 25th. On the other hand, it does seem as though you're kind of providing an out for Russia. You just mentioned Russia wants to show the international community we're good payers, we're going to stay on our claims. But here's a place where you can basically say, well, they're not good payers for reasons that really have nothing to do with financial issues. They have to do with political and how they've behaved in the system. And so by keeping this deadline, you basically almost force a default. Now, what the legal ramifications of that are, I don't really know because I think this is kind of slightly unprecedented. Maybe I'm sure there's some lawyer that could tell me it's not totally unprecedented, but it sounds like it's a slightly unprecedented. Secondly, it does look like you are, for lack of a better word, taking your foot off the throat of the Russians. And so that probably politically and perception-wise doesn't play very well. And staying on this very challenging questions, I have a follow-up for you. There is a discussion of potentially confiscating Russian frozen reserves. As we know now that they're frozen, but their ownership hasn't transferred anywhere else. It stays with Russia. What do you think of those ideas? What are the risks? Is it even possible to do so? 
So I'm going to break this out into two parts. There is the idea of taking like oligarch assets, so very wealthy Russians, assets, and we've seen this around the world where they take a yacht. Now, you can freeze it and by just taking a yacht and basically you just hold it, or you can take those assets, turn them into money and provide it as assistance to Ukraine or to the taxpayer, whatever. You could do something with that. Now, the only problem with that, of course, is that at least in the United States context, it needs to be something that is associated with breaking a law. So we see this sometimes in drug busts and things like that. Okay, so you now have to prove that a law has been broken and that the assets here are tied to that. And that's a difficult thing to do. I believe the Biden administration is intent on trying to figure that out. They may need legislation, but of course, it's difficult. The part you asked more about, which is not only freezing sovereign assets, but then utilizing those sovereign assets. And how do you avoid that being seen as, frankly, an expropriation? And that, I think, is even a trickier question and is very hard to see. Now, we've seen in some cases over the years reparations. Bad example of that is World War I. Another example of that is the reparations from Iraq invading Kuwait back in the 90s. This is not an easy legal thing to do. I could see that being an easier case to be made on the kind of the oligarch assets than on the central bank reserve assets. And probably in either case, this could prove to be the Lawyer Employment Act of 2023. So one aspect that there doesn't seem to be much progress on, but it is an important aspect for the Russian economy and the European economy is natural gas. So all the EU right now is talking about is embargoing oil. They're having difficulties getting consensus around that. The next step would be also to embargo natural gas imports. How do you see that playing out and why is it so difficult? The reason it is so difficult to disconnect Europe from Russian gas is expensive multi-billion infrastructure needs. So what happens even in oil, we see there is Druzhba pipeline, which became operation in 1964. And that's why countries are looking for carve-outs, because this is the way they get oil. It is a small, much smaller percentage of oil that gets to Europe via pipeline, and a much bigger percentage, almost the entire Russian gas, that goes to Europe via infrastructure of pipelines. And some countries at the northern part of Europe, at the, at the sort of eastern northern parts of Europe, do not have any alternatives. So if they were to be disconnected in the middle of the winter, which we have seen in the past, that will be very challenging because also the stockpiles are much lower this time around than they were during the previous crisis. At the same time, with Russia disconnecting already countries, as we discussed earlier, Europeans have to be also on the defensives here and be ready that come winter, they might actually face full freeze out of Russian gas. Very complicated and understandable why this has been so hard to do. My last question I want to turn to you is something a little bit more personal for you. So when you and I were helping put together the sanctions paper that IIF produced back in late February, we spent a lot of hours on it, you particularly. I remember that one weekend where we rewrote the darn thing four or five times. But in the same time, after that was done and we then dealt with our personal families and so forth, you had a different task which is that you are originally from Latvia, you have family in Ukraine, you have family in Russia, and you were actually working on how do I help figure out getting my family out of Ukraine as bombs are dropping all around them and the Russian military forces are actually attacking 
the country, not just military in Ukraine, but unfortunately attacking civilians as well. How did you deal with that? Well, I think there are stories here that we'll spend many hours discussing, including inflatable boats across the river in Kherson, buses just in the beginning of the war across the border with Russia, and many other wonderful stories, including my cousin getting married in Ukraine, hopefully, as we're speaking now. But I think the key point here is being a Russian speaker, where being from Latvia, from Russia, from Ukraine, doesn't mean that you support Russia's aggression on Ukraine, doesn't mean that you support Putin's policies, and doesn't mean that you're going to be welcoming them when they come, quote unquote, liberating. And this is an important point from my family who grew up actually in the same town as Zelensky in Krivoy Roch. My grandparents and parents are from there. And they chose, rather than taking a few kilometers towards Russian border or staying in place, they chose to spend more than two days of driving across the entire country in order to be able to be on the right side of things. Well, Alina, thank you for hanging in there and doing all this work while at the same time taking care of your family. And of course, obviously, we only wish the best for them and their health. Thank you so much. So let me do the three, two, one from today's episode. My three takeaways. First, as we said last week, the energy sanctions on Europe are quite complicated in a number of ways that we sometimes in the United States don't give enough credence to. But it is a hard thing to do, which is try to figure out how to cut off a very important asset for your economy, but at the same time, try to make sure you implement those sanctions. Second, while Russia's economy has not declined maybe as precipitously as we originally expected, it is still in deep trouble. And as Alina said, we are still sticking by our approximately 15% contraction this year. Third, Usually when we think about a sovereign paying its debt, the questions are, does it have the ability to pay and does it have the willingness to pay? But we are actually entering a very odd situation where the legal regime, at least in the United States, could be about whether the creditor has the ability to receive payments. This is entering a different dimension as far as I'm concerned. Two things I am watching out for is one, whether the May 25th OFAC extension takes place or not, will this exemption continue to be made by the Treasury on a case-by-case -case basis, or will they just stop it and then create a heightened risk of Russian default, which the lawyers may debate whether that is a default or not? And second, is Ukraine's financial situation looking forward? Will there be a debt restructuring or not? And much more importantly, will there be financing there? to help them through the short term as well as through the medium term. Now let me turn to my one sports topic for the week. Again, like last week, I'm gonna take a little bit of a detour. And that is to talk about a sport that I've never really been sure is a sport, which is horse racing and the Kentucky Derby. I always chalked it up in my mind as to why I wasn't sure if it was a sport by the fact that I know next to nothing about horse racing. But let me discuss last week's Kentucky Derby very briefly because it was kind of amazing. The race was won by Rich Strike. He was the race's largest underdog in over 100 years to win that race. If you're a gambler and you had put $2 on Rich Strike, it would have won you over $116. Let me put that in context. If you had bet on the horse that finished second, if that horse had won and you had put $2 down, you would have won $6. That's a pretty significant difference. Third point is the jockey, the trainer, and the owner have never even been close to even running in the Kentucky Derby, let alone winning it. 
for a sport in which usually the jockey, the trainer, and the owner are all usually very, very well in doing lots of Kentucky Derbies. Rich Strike turns out also to be only the second horse who ever won the race from the furthest part of the track when they started. And let me just be a little more human about this. Eric Reed, Rich Strike's trainer, who has been a trainer for many years, but never of the quality of a horse that could make the Kentucky Derby, nearly quit the sport six years ago because of a barn fire, which tragically killed over 20 of his horses. He just wanted to quit because what's the point? And this was awful. But the community and the horse racing community rallied around him, helped him return to the sport, and today he can proudly say that he trained the horse that pulled off one of the biggest surprises in the history of the race, and heck, maybe the history of sports. Which brings me back to horse racing as a sport. While Rich Strike's accomplishment is phenomenal, I want to turn maybe to the jockey, Sonny Leone from Venezuela, and his role in this race. If you watch an overhead of him guiding the horse through the field, for those of you old enough, it looks like a game of Frogger. I couldn't believe that a horse could actually move in the ways that he was moving that horse. This cannot possibly be easy, and so Sonny Leone probably deserves to be called an athlete in this sport. Anyway, we will see how Rich Strike fares in the rest of the Triple Crown. A few short weeks at Preakness, which he may or may not run, and then a few short weeks later at the Belmont. But for now, what an achievement. Anyway, thanks again to my colleague, Alina Rybakova, for the great analysis and her moving story. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Current Account with Clay Lowry, and I hope you'll join us next week. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show, as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Please make sure to tune in next Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.